Right. So we're on. We're rolling. Beautiful. Can I uh, give a slight disclaimer to the listening audience? Sure. I want people to know that they may hear some slight fluctuations in my voice. Mm -hmm. After 13, 14, 17 shows in the last couple of days, uh, maybe 25 shows just this morning, and uh, I am suffering from a slight head cold, uh -huh. and uh, Michael keeps pushing a purple dildo into my mouth as I'm talking, <laughs> and it makes it difficult to really enunciate. Listen, Carl, everyone I've interviewed has been subject to that same exact treatment, so... I did want to ask you if they were <laughs> nude at the time, because I can't see Phil going through with this. <laughs> Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters that populate this world. My name is David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, and I'm your host for this growing collection of interviews. In this episode, we're exploring the life and times of Carl Salader through an interview that Mike Wood conducted in Grand Prairie back in July of 2013. Carl is one of those guys whose name I'd been hearing for years, but it wasn't until I got to Edmonton for the Street Performers Festival in 2013 that I actually got to meet him. Right from the get-go, I was engaged by his affable manner and made a point of going to check out his show. Like so many of us on the street, Carl's on-stage persona is a delightfully well-tuned amplification of who he is anyway, and I thoroughly enjoyed his rapport with the crowd. Beyond just being a performer, though, I'd call Carl a creator. He writes, he sculpts, and he moves through the world with an eye for building things. When he's not doing some sort of renovation to the church he lives in, or restoring a VW bus... He's out making people laugh with a passion for performing that shows no sign of stopping anytime soon. A most remarkable journey filled with so many great stories from the pitch. So I'm here in a hotel room uh, with Carl Salader. We're in uh, Grand Prairie and we've just been rained out of Saturday. Like so many Saturdays in the past, this one is a rainy one. Yes, bleak yet disappointing. <laughs> yes, both bleak and disappointing at the same time. And I thought it was a good time to sit down and chat. Now, I know that I have known you since... I want to say mid-late 90s, mm -hmm. but that is certainly not the beginning of where Carl Salader comes from. And so, first question, which came first, juggling or the desire to show off? Um, good question. The damn buskers started me when I was seven or eight. I know that I had to hold Grandma's hand and it was way high, so I know I was pretty young. And she took me to Central Park. Grandma was from Queens. Mm -hmm. And we went to, I assume it was Central Park. I don't know. I know there was a subway ride involved and it was a park. Right. And there was a juggler and he was my God. I'll never know his name. He was the universe. I had never seen juggling. Right. Not and, on television, not on... No. Right. No. And I thought it was a hundred balls. It probably was five. Yep. Maybe seven. But I was front row and I was stunned. She gave me, actually, Grandma gave me a sandwich to put in his hat. And I put it in like beaming and he beamed back at me. Like, he got it. Right. He understood my adoration and accepted it and gave me a big smile. And I was, damn it, I was going to juggle. Oh, I knew it. Wow. And I went home, I cut up mom's nylons and started juggling. I instinctively knew that she wouldn't notice. I think she had enough. I don't know what it was. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She wasn't wearing them anymore. I got away with that. Yeah, yeah she was out of them. <laughs> Thankfully. So, you're living in New York? Are you living near New York? No, I was visiting Grandma. Uh, right. We were living in Connecticut at the time. Right. We were what I call the upper, upper east side of Manhattan. <laughs> and so, I guess I don't understand how a seven-year-old teaches himself to juggle. What? I knew I wanted something lightweight to fall slowly. You know, right. And then that was why the nylons. And I don't know where it came from that, oh, gee, cut up mom's nylons. Like, there wasn't any right. had, previous had, had the juggler before. done some handkerchiefs or something? I mean... Quite possibly. Maybe that planted the seed. But right. I don't have anything in my memory for what. And so you were sort of juggling yeah, did. in an overhand cascade. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Just super slow, watching them come down. And I learned the pattern. And it was a breeze to change it from that to balls. At age seven, I was just wide open to it. Wow. And I never learned that you could do anything with it. I never learned any tricks. And for many, many years, I would juggle in the supermarket like, oh, look at the guy juggling the oranges. You know, it was right. fun. But I had no distinctions, like no background of relatedness to it as an art. Right. Just that this guy was great, and I was a little greater because I could now. Right. Was this a means to show off at school? or? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yep. One of my first show-offs was Tracy Shannon. Mm. She was cute. We all have Tracy Shannon in our lives. Yeah, Tracy. Ooh, God, what a number. And she could juggle. And so could uh, this one... You know what? I might have gotten Tracy Shannon's name wrong. Because I'm picturing her face and it ain't Tracy's. Mm. 
forget that girl's name. She was kind of an enigma. But she had tricks. And so I learned from her. And she was happy to share them. Not only a cute girl, but she had these great tricks. And we would interact. And I had a solid three-ball trick lexicon. It wasn't a pattern. I didn't know about performing or anything like that. And then I went to college. I wanted theater. My dad wanted to pay for communications. I went for communications. Yeah. And about a semester in, I met Mark Farnes, a street performer who turned my life around. You know, right? was, that was my teacher. He was having fun. I was selling slices of pizza in Pizza Pad. And he came in, and he's got coins, and he's putting coins through people's bodies, you know, and he's doing these magic tricks I've never seen. I was pretty provincial, and I, there was a lot I hadn't seen. So, but I, I haven't seen that since. I mean, he was good with the coins. And he had clubs in his backpack, and we became very good friends. And I went out, and I used to play the drums while he would perform. He would do the juggling act. And he was bringing in like $65 in, right. in 40 minutes. And that's in 1942 money. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. So you can buy a house after yeah, you sure. show. <laughs> yeah, trailers and homes and hula girls. <laughs> you know, what everyone gets. When sure, yeah. And he taught me way past juggling. He taught me how to make performance fun. He taught me forget thinking inside the box. He asked me if I was happy with my job at Pizza Pad. And I said, yeah. And he said, I feel sorry for you. And he said it from the heart. And it wasn't insulting as much as it was mind-opening. So he was a teacher on a lot of levels. It was his time to show me some stuff. And then things just started falling into place. It was a pretty cool summer. We were in Cambridge and Harvard Square. I was given a big, long rope from mm -hmm. my apartment building roof. I rescued it. And we, we like tied it up between two trees in the park and just... We were learning slack rope. We were on it every day. And, right. you know, I was working in a moving company, and a Schwinn unicycle shows up. I mean, things fell into place beautifully. Right. It was uh, it was a great time. And what time period is that? I mean, is that the golden age of Harvard Square or the beginning of Harvard Square? It was the beginning of the decline of Harvard Square. Right. It was 86. You could still do fire. There was still a pitch. There was a legitimate pitch. Harvard, they were very intellectual. And Faneuil Hall was on, too. But Harvard Square was a more interesting place to work. I was working it in an ancillary way. I was working it, backing up Mark, but I didn't have a solo show. I was playing a lot of harmonica at the time. And for me, actually, I would say Mark was my baptism and my confirmation was from Brother Blue, who mm -hmm. was a storyteller up there. Beautiful guy, black guy, balloons in his hair, ribbons, balloon ribbons all through his fingers, decked out in cheap, gorgeous regalia. And he would make you cry and make you laugh if you sat for 10 minutes. I mean, he would make it happen. He had pure, pure soul. And he was a fucking professor of theology at Harvard, you know, when he wasn't right. street performing. And what was his show? Storyteller. Right, straight up, once upon a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell you the story of how love came into the world. He would tell the story of his first grade teacher and how he was this complete outcast, couldn't make it work in this all-white school. And this teacher one day said, you know, Blue, I think you really got it. I love you. And that was it. He was straight A's from that day on. The world became a beautiful place because she was in it. But I can't, I can't do any justice. The way he told it, you were there for him. You just, boy, what a master. And he invited me to play harmonica behind him. He was like a bodhisattva. He had something. He was an unusual being. He was gifted. And I would play better than I had ever played because I was so into supporting him and listening and trying to really be there for him. And the guy was intuitive. I mean, like, fast forward five or seven years, he's performing at SUNY. He saw him in the audience, and he was like, you got something, don't you? And he called me up, and I played with him then. I mean, we had a, a great, great connection, and he was just a really strong figure. To me, introduced me, frankly, to kind of the magic element of it. To me, it's an unusual right. realm that we traffic in. Hmm. And when did you do your first show, then? Because it sounds to me like you're sort of backing up other people That's what I was doing. up to now. Yep, I was doing that in Harvard Square. And this is post-first year of college. First semester, I dropped out. Okay. Yeah. My father had said, get B pluses or better, or you have to pay. Uh -huh. So when he stopped paying, I stopped going. Yep. You know, and that was one semester. I think it was most of a semester. So I was out, and I'm working in Alston as a mover, you know, and moving furniture and doing no performing for money. And it was a summer of couch surfing. I went from having an apartment to living in my Volkswagen bug and cruising around, getting high a lot, having fun, going to, to ponds, swimming. It was really casual. And then I decided to, okay, time to go home and see what's next. And, oh, yeah, yeah, what happened? Uh, my roommate, I came home one day to our apartment. I was living with uh, a guy who was like a Coke dealer. Mm -hmm. And I came home and our place had been ransacked. The cops had been there and everything was up to our knees. Junk. 
It was our stuff. And it was just like complete mayhem. And I looked around and just said, it's time for me to leave. Yeah. And then I had a few weeks living in the car. And then I was like, okay, I'm going home. I went home and I practiced for about eight months. Mm-hmm. I worked for my father. I totally conformed. I actually, at that time in my life, I decided to sober up and clean up. And I've been clean and sober for, I think, 28 years. And so there was, I came home and had a major turning point and I put all of my energy into juggling. I just really focused on, okay, this is a secure place. Everything is taken care of. My needs are met. I'm going to just root here and grow. And that fall I went to the Goshen Fair and I put out all my stuff. Which is, sorry, which is what? Goshen Fair is what? Oh, it's a local Connecticut fair. Okay. And is it like a state fair or is it an autumn harvest festival? What is it? I think it's a state fair. If, right. if not, it's a county fair, but they get 100,000 people to go through. Okay, sure. So, so it's not rosy rhubarb days. It's a big fair. Yeah. Okay, good. So we're at, we're at Goshen Fair. Goshen Fair. I go without permission. Just show up. I got an Indian gurkha knife, a bowling ball, gypsy pants, a gypsy shirt, hair down to my shoulders. And I just start doing it up. You know, the finale was three torches. My first show, right? I got a good amount of people. I think it was a couple hundred. I still got the photograph. I was stoked. And a lame hat line. Like, total disclaimer, if you would like to, here's my hat, maybe if you if you feel like throwing a little something, that'd be okay, and nobody. They slowly dispersed and walked away, and one old woman walked up to me, like slow motion, might as well have been a movie, and she put a quarter in my hat. Instead of despair, I looked at the quarter and said, I gotta improve this hat line. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great moment, I'm really right. glad she came up. Sure. <clears throat> and I did like 13 or 14 shows that day in the mid-sun. I got a whole whack of change, and I remember being on a picnic table at the end of the day, and I got stacks of quarters, four high, and then 10 high, and I counted it all up, and I had 89 bucks. Yeah. And I said, I'll never work again. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is, this is it. I'm never going back. And that was, that was the first day of a series of shows. Right. And so your last straight job then was working for your dad. Uh, no, no. I had a couple after him as I was sobering up. I left his company. I worked for Mike Rooney for Old Country Painting. And then I worked for a local landscaping company as a lawn jockey, rolling around cutting grass. Right. And so from Goshen Fair, you go to paid gigs? Connecticut Fairs after that. No, I was hitchhiking from fair to fair. The second day, the producer came up to me. He's like, you can't be here. What are you doing? Yeah. And he said something that I was so proud of. He goes, uh, I saw what you were doing yesterday. You obviously know what you're doing. You know you can. And I was like, he thinks I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I just apologized. I said, look, I hitchhiked two hours to come here. You've got to let me do this. Just just please. And I worked that fair, I think, for 13 years. You know, he, became, he was Peter, and he became my friend, and he gave me this little pitch, which is the one I had chosen, actually, behind a lemonade stand. And I made great, great shows there. And so then I decided, okay, Connecticut Fairs, but you got to call ahead. So I would call, and I would tell him, I'll come and do his shows no charge to you, just let me pass the hat. And I killed it for a long time. I saved up a lot of money. I went to Sant that year for the juggling convention. Right. Just on what I had saved. Got to go to Europe for the first time. I was stoked. Yeah. As you would be. Yeah. And who, I mean, who else? Was that like a little tour that you carved out for yourself? Sant's assistance? Yeah, nobody was on it. I was the only hat pass act in town for the... So you're literally making your own work there. Yeah, I had no roadmap, no clue. You know, I had no idea that you developed in such a vacuum. Yeah. That's such an interesting thing to me. Like, almost zero input from the world at large. Really just slicing your own way. It's, it's pretty cool. Yep, and a very good teacher showed me that have an effect on people. He wasn't funny. He was not funny, but he commanded them incredibly. Mark mm-hmm. Farnes, again. He was challenging. I haven't seen anything like it since. He would, you know, do the two balls on one finger, a ball spinning, and he would look at them like, what the hell is wrong with you people? And he would really say, like, you need to react to this in a much stronger way. And I can't convey the way he did it, but he actually was waking people up. And that was his mm. thing. And he had a profound effect on him. He taught me that the tricks really were secondary to what your message was conveying. And, and for you and me, I think it's comedy. We're in it for the laugh. Yeah. He was in it for waking people up. And after that, it was vacuum city. Yeah, it was very, very little, but it was totally doable. No peers, very few. They were in Boston. Yeah, and so. why not go back to Boston? Why not? Once you're you know, nailing it, I did. It, I did okay. in the fall when that was over. When that circuit was drying up, I went back to Boston and I had three hundred bucks. 
Mm-hmm. So I said, uh, Mark, man, let's go to Florida. We can get plane tickets. And we did. We got a couple $99 tickets. We went down to Florida. We went to Key West. And I set up my stuff. And I'm like, I'm, now I'm a juggler, right? And I, I got all my stuff out there. And I'm doing, I have about 25 very reluctant people who are kind of watching me and yeah. feeling like, oh, this, this is Mallory here. We got bad taste for choosing this. Yeah. 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 And then uh, Birdie McLean from Locomotion Circus sets up next to me. And my whole crowd just really starts watching him from right where they are. Yeah. And then he's a silent act even <laughs> and without music. And they slowly walk over. You know, he's part of Bailey trained. He's a genius. I love the act. At that point, I made a decision. Maybe washing dishes would be a good job for a while. So I took a job at Casa Manana washing dishes, and I went out and watched Gazzo, Birdie, Will Soto, you know, a bunch of the real pros. I learned a lot right. just from watching. Mark and I found a really cheap place on Petronia Street, five and a half foot ceilings, outdoor shower, mm-hmm. beautiful Key West living. I loved it. 300 a month between the two of us. And uh, New Year's Eve, I went back out and realized that away from those guys, my show was okay. Just don't put me up against Will Soto. And I'm an acceptable show. Right. Then I hitchhiked out to California. I went to a rainbow gathering in Ocala National Forest, a protest somewhere with Seeds of Peace. And then from there, hitchhiked out to California and started working at Balboa Park. Balboa Park in San Diego, where there's a fair pitch draw even now. That's a pitch I know nothing about. Who was there then? Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray, uh, is it Ron? What the heck is his name with the... Oh, man, I'm surprised I don't remember his name. But he had a 25-foot-high unicycle. <laughs> amazing, amazing. He had to lean it against the building. Climbed up it, and then he would say from, like, 25 feet up, he would lean down and go, you have to ask yourself, hundreds of people, is this worth a buck or what? And we're all just like, yeah. Are you serious, 25 feet? Yeah, 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 a 25-footer. He actually, oddly enough, strange story, he broke his leg on that, if you could imagine. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah what a shocker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> what could go wrong? What possibly could have happened to make him break his leg? Mm, don't know. Ray Jason was out there at the time briefly. You know, some acts that have come and gone whose names I couldn't tell you. And the park itself is what an amusement park or pleasure mm, dome zoo? What is it? No, more like a, a state park or a county park. It's, okay, it's, I think there are amusements in it, but it's more like stroll your child through this part of town. You know, it's right. safe, quiet, like Central Park. Okay, beautiful spot. Huh. And so from there you go... What happened after that? I mean, when did you start joining the circuit? Is it, I guess the question. You know, I had a lot of years of just performing on my own. I had a very interesting meeting, I think, in the 90s. So I did four or five years of just doing it whenever I could. And I had a child in there. Mm-hmm. When I had Samantha, then I had to start getting serious about the business end of it. I started making videos and 8 by 10s and sending them to agents and schools and blah, blah, blah. So I started again without a roadmap, figuring out, well, if this guy says entertainment agency in the Yellow Pages, maybe he'd be interested in cold calling and doing all the brutal shit-eating work that's sometimes involved in this. So I had a base, and a funny little base, and then back before emails, I got a fax from a guy in Japan, and I got a gig in Japan. And that was where I met this crazy guy who rubs the top of glasses. Uh, Ed Stander. Right. We met in the airport. We're on the same gig. He's doing the glasses rubbing. Tony Duncan was on it. A couple of other acts. I think there were 10 acts, but those are the ones I remember their names. So we all go to Japan, and we had this time together, and I learned from Ed about these street performance festivals. He's like, yeah, you got to do Halifax, you got to do Edmonton. He showed me uh, Late Night Madness mm-hmm. video, Checkerhead's Wedding was the, the one he showed me. Oh, right. And I'm like, yeah, I can hang with these kind of people. That looks like a deal. And so I got Halifax. And I heard, you know, Shelly from Edmonton is here. Ooh, Shelly from Edmonton. And we met and we liked each other. And I asked her, would you come and uh, critique the show? Let me know what you think. Give me some ideas. And she came and she said that her and her friend were coughing blood laughing. And I'm invited to Edmonton. So that was what put me on the circuit, really. To backtrack a little bit, during your period of study in (laughs) Key West, Mm -hmm. when you were a student of the game, what are some of the things that kind of unlocked for you? Like, were you... You have those aha moments. It's you know very similar to you handing the sandwich to the guy in Central Park, mm-hmm. where you're like, "Oh, that mischief was one." There was a performer you know by name, uh, Gazzo, and I don't know why he was so tolerant of me, but I watched him virtually every night, at least one show. And now, 
knowing what I know, I would never do this, but I, I pedaled up to his circle on a bicycle and stayed on my bicycle. Mm. I like, lived on my bike down there. I loved it. And he was so abusive, of course, with his audience, but he had this sense of mischief that let him get away with all of it. And what it was that he was conveying was, you and I know that I'm just kidding around here. And they got it. They picked up on it. He had this beautiful sense of mischief. And then from Will Soto, I just learned the beauty of discipline and friendliness. He had a really good mix. He was a wire walker. Really nice, kind of a hippie vibe and a great mix of pouring out love and showing really good tricks. I learned from Will just to convey love. Because that was his thing and he did it beautifully. And so those were two of them. Oh, don't be hierarchical. You know, at that time, that was when I met Butterfly Man. Yep. They had a big festival down there, and Robert was flown in, and Ray Jason was flown in, and they were the big stars. Avner was doing the evening show, and I'm a nobody. I got the long hair, and I'm walking to the evening show, and a car pulls over, and it's Robert and Ray. And Robert asked me if I want to ride. I said, sure. And I got in, and like everyone, I was stunned by his generosity, you know, just by how kind he was and how open. And this was a star to me. This was a big guy, you know, got flown in. wasn't even on my lexicon. And he was just a regular guy, just a really guy. I even said to him, ah, I, you know, I heard you were really rough and hard and mean. And he's like, not right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's just what I do in my show. Yeah, that's, yeah. it's coming. It's a character. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> T minus 15 minutes. <laughs> I'll tell you a little vignette about him. What a man. I hired him to be my director, you know, 12, 15 years in the future of that meeting. And uh, he flew in. And it was 3000 bucks, and it was going to be three-day intensive. And so we did a five-day instead of three. And we did all this, you know, storyboards on the wall and who is his character and all this stuff and looking through all these reams of material and coming up with some great stuff that I still haven't used that's, that's beautiful and some stuff that I used right away. And I gave him the check, you know, first day or something. And about the third or fourth day, he handed me back the check. And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm totally happy with this. This is a very good deal. What, why are you? Yeah, yeah. And he said, I just don't want it. <laughs> and wow. he said, buy a couple tires for your motorcycle, will you? You know, he just didn't feel like taking the money. Wow. Yeah. That's really nice. That was astounding. I still can't get over that. And how did that process work? Did you do a show for him, just him? Or was it like, well, let's go down to my local pitch and you watch the show, and then we'll come back, and we can talk about it for five days. No, he had seen me a couple times in, uh, what's the one that's right by Detroit? Windsor? Yeah. Yeah. Windsor, where he had not been performing, but he was there as a, I don't know, as a Robert Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> I will be your Robert Nelson for the evening. Yeah. They flew him in to be Robert. Yeah. So he was there, and he's familiar with the show. And so from, based on that, he, you, you started, that was the starting point. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't need to see it or reference it beyond that right and so I know little interludes bits of the story you know I meet you with my partner in Columbus with Cam yeah and then like years pass and then we kind of reconnect in Singapore I want to say four or five years later yeah Singapore you know what I remember about you in Singapore I don't a bunch of us went to Cambodia after Uh I think it was uh, Phil certainly was there and Colin Jules and you and was that it? Was that all of us? I well, I think that Acros joined us for a bit of it too. Yep. That's oh, right. and Eric, Eric Amber was there as well. Yep. So we're going, and we do the pyramid stops or the archaeological ruins time oh, yeah. after time, and in the temples, and invariably at every one of the stops, there are, let's say, seven to twelve tents and put up little mini pop up bazaar. Yep. where they're selling everything from tchotchkes to doodads. And mm. finally, at about the fourth of these, quite repetitive, if third world and modestly different at first, yeah. scenarios, you pipe up. We had some tour operator, and you piped up from the middle of the van going, will there be items available for purchase? <laughs> and at that point, I was like, I really like this guy. <laughs> this guy is all right. And I don't know if you remember this, but there was this one thing in Singapore that was gorgeous, too. Singapore was where I was first starting to be not the young buck anymore. I was just mid-30s, whatever it was, you know, I could see the curve. And it was partially indicated to me by a fire act, and his name was Pyromancer. Mm -hmm. And he was a great fire act, above reproach in what he was capable of doing. His skills were fine. People loved him. 
But the thing that drove us nuts about Pyromancer, me and the other old fucks, was that he wouldn't put the lid on his fuel. He didn't have time for that, couldn't be bothered for it. And we found out later, not knowing this, each one of us had approached him going, hey, good show, put a lid on your fire, close that thing. And he was not having it. And by God, at the end of the festival, he had not had a single error. So we're leaving in the bus, and in the bus there's a five-gallon cube of fuel for all the performers. There were so many fire people on that gig. And we're leaving, and I said to him as an attempt to make friends or erase or garner humility or whatever the hell I was trying to do, to just be honest, be straight with the guy. I said, look, you know what? I got to admit it, dude. You didn't have a single incident, so it's not the way I would have done it, but you pulled it off. And he picked up a five-gallon jar of fuel and lifted it up to his mouth and said, because I am the fire master. And he picked it up and someone had left the thing loose. And it <laughs> poured all over the fucking guy. And all the old guys are going, thank you, God. Thank you, Buddha. Thank you, Jesus. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment on the bus. I wish I'd seen that. Oh, it was gorgeous. That guy, I remember he did Halifax the following year. Okay. And I remember him leaving big greasy smudges every single pitch. Ah, uh, I'm not surprised. I'm it's not like surprised. following a guy that used spray paint or something, because <laughs> it was just big greasy goo on every pitch. Oh, Pyromancer was here 15 oh. minutes ago, or four days ago, or six days ago. Like, you could really tell. Ouch. He was a good sport about it. On uh, Peanut, I retold the story, called him out on it, and he was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, was a, that was a doozy. That was a thing. Yeah. Beautiful moment, the pride before the fall. Yeah. Because I'm the fireman. <laughs> glug, 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 glug. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Well, yeah, I, I mean, to go back to, you know, I meet you with my partner in Columbus, and then that intervening time, presumably, was you on a tour of all these street performing festivals full time and doing cruise ships at the same time. Was that about the right That was the mix, time yeah. period? Uh, festivals and cruise ships and then I was also a mercenary because at the same time I'm a single father raising my daughter and a big part of that was staying home so I was proximate to New York and there was all this gig work so I'm doing anything where the phone rings mm -hmm. so I was doing everything from you know $3,000 corporate keynotes to would you eat fire for Janie's birthday anything the gamut and they were all you know on different levels gratifying they were all less or more intense and they were all just being out there trying to make it fun for people. I haven't really found a cruise ship I like. I've done a fair deal of them. But they're just this horribly fake environment. There's always something about entertainment where you are creating a temporary environment. And it's real. But in a sense, on a ship, it's too, too much of the we're having fun now thing. Right. That's hard for me to be around for, right. for a long time. Being a guy who also works a corporate job, I always kind of joke with my chums about this like mandatory fun yes you know yeah, yeah, yeah. corporate christmas party begins at six mm -hmm. that sounds to me like that's the environment that you dislike about ships yeah yeah that exact thing yeah. okay you know we're gonna do the conga line yeah. really our time is for the next three hours 45 minutes <laughs> bars yeah. open let's go yeah and is it largely the same shtick do you do you know same tricks better costume Yep. I had a great thing happen like three years ago. I was going to Mexico to do a job. And I had talked to this producer. We hadn't talked at all about my look or anything. And it was a word of mouth gig. And I thought, I'm just doing it in black and I'm going to go that way. And it was a huge relief for me. You know, especially now uh, as I stare down the barrel of 50, I'm not sure I want to put on the bright red pants and the crazy shoes. But interestingly... As I was doing that, I had a flood in my home in Connecticut. I live in this old church right on the Hisatonic River, and the river backed up into my home. And all of my costumes were in the basement, and they all were flooded out. Mm -hmm. It had to be thrown out. There some black water was involved, and mold grew, and so everything had to be tossed. So I had the good fortune of not even being there, but hiring people to, to get rid of all my shit. And so I came back and had nada. Right. And really liked it. Really liked it. The prop cleanse. Yeah. Yeah, it was exactly that. Yeah. And how do you get out from under that? Because presumably you lost more than just the costumes. Mm hmm Lost the sound system. Lost many years worth of accumulated stuff that I might use someday in sculpture. 
Lost a lot of stuff, which included, you know, several thousand Super Bowls, and that's a hard loss. That is a tough one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that one was that one. Was oh. About ten thousand uh, little toy soldiers. Mm. Yeah, glued them all over a ball one time and called it "Are We Safe Yet?" That's a nice piece. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that was fun. What a great idea. Yeah. Well, and that's another element of your life that I think is really interesting: is the I am an artist. Yeah, yeah. And I am producing a thing. Where does that come from? Is it the same? dark recesses that require you to perform in front of public or is it something else i have told myself it's a retreat from that actually um sculpture for me started probably 15 years ago maybe 20 now i'm not sure but samantha was in first grade or second grade first grade so it was a while ago they had no tv week at school and that was something i felt strongly about and i had this my father had this old satellite dish so me and my friend winnie took the dish apart and we put all this you know wood paneling around it and strung it up so that it was a big uh, spider web put a tv in the middle and a clown inside the tv holding these bars from a shopping cart and then a little family in the webbing and set that up at the school for a day and the principal just hated it which made me even happier (laughs) (laughs) i loved it and that began a very slow process a a many year long journey until i was on a, a walk in the woods and i saw this one particular stone i really liked and I started working with rocks and uh, steel rods. And for me, it's I do it to go to the studio and just shut up. You know, I love mm. having the headphones on, not having to interact, and just to create something without an audience, you know. So is it that that is more for you? And the now I'm juggling on a unicycle while playing a harmonica, that's for the people? Can't say that. More like a dichotomy, like... Like, I remember coming back from weekends full of performing and just barely taking the time to change my clothes, but just going into the studio just in order to have the quiet time. The, I have to admit that performing is still for me. You know, I'm still very, very gratified by the performing on all the levels. So that's still there. And the sculpture, it's almost more like an inquiry than a, a form of gratification. It's like an exploration. And I'm mad about it. I think my most original work has been in sculpture. But I'm taking a pause right now from it. Right. Get back to it when it's time. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I identify with that, but not... I sort of live a life of side projects. Mm -hmm. You know? There's no one thing that I'm like, oh, that's what I do. Right. And so I see that it's like, well, this satisfies this thing and this scratches that itch and this quenches that thirst so I can see the division but I don't have that specific one where it's like I must build a sculpture out of rocks and stone and I need to be alone and just mm-hmm. do this <laughs> yeah it's a fun aspect and I have no idea where it comes from but I know I love doing it well it's nice that you have the ability to do it yeah yeah that's that's a good time <laughs> and I mean your show has changed but not super changed when did you come across the structure that you have to it now where it's three beautiful pieces each of them is pretty weird in its own way Mm -hmm. and you know you end with this beautiful signature piece of juggling on a big unicycle you know i don't know oddly it 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 started with the harmonica very 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 long ago that finale has been an integral part of the show since about three years in it you know i took a summer and i learned it the playing the music while rocking around and juggling was something that, you know, as you approach it, you just, you have to have something that you're really happy with. You have to have something that you're presenting as, hey, I did this for you guys, check it out. There are a lot of interchangeable little modules within it. Uh, The structure right now is very, you know, fitted into the time allotted. Mm -hmm. You know, if they need 60, I've got 60. If they need 20, I've got 20. The pieces that I've, I've come across are just the ones that I like doing. You know, I really, what I like is, depending on how many laughs can I squeeze out of it. You know, how can I get them to have a fun time watching it? Right. I would definitely be happy to switch to a card trick if I could make that funnier. You know? Right. Yeah. For you, it is about increasing laughs per minute. Yeah. 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 Joke density. <laughs> exactly. Which I guess is why we get along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's about making, giving them a laugh for me or a good feeling. I can't, I can't go the hokey route. I can't pull on the heartstrings or anything like that. But I do love to make them laugh. Mm. And there's something about that. That's the path for me. Do you have a sense of where that comes from? Oh, yeah, my family. That was the answer to everything from day one. My mom was a gifted mimic, and she could just imitate anyone's voice. She never did it out of the house. So she was Irish. She had the Irish sense of humor. 
and my father loved to have a laugh and he was always after a joke and mom was never quite accepting of his comedy but all the kids like all of us for whatever reason that's the tool we always pick up to a fault probably yeah well I mean people say that right and you're like well can you ever have a serious conversation with that guy Jesus he's always but I mean that is it's a great defense mechanism yeah Yeah, it's effective it seriously works yeah do you feel that like oh I'm covering up here we go I've had a couple girlfriends call me on that and it was true you know Mm -hmm. but not something I'm trying to hide either like yeah I am covering up yeah this is stuff worth moving on from. Yes. <laughs> I do need to deny my mortality for just a moment and yeah. have a good yuck, if exactly. you don't mind. I know we're going to die. <laughs> but not this instant. It'll come soon enough, dear. <laughs> and so let me lay this banana peel on the sidewalk. Watch this, watch this, watch this. <laughs> mom, mom, watch me dive. <laughs> have a damn Holtzman with the... Love me, Daddy. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, that is so funny because it's true. Yes. Love me, Daddy. <laughs> and the audience, they just, they stop. They're like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. He just laid it on us. <laughs> yes, and fathers hug their sons a little bit closer. <laughs> You're okay, Rocky. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> you won't turn out like the man, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be good to you. Yeah. I wanted to mention how proud I am of that catch. <laughs> uh, we're all so twisted. Aren't we? Yeah, well, it's, it's all there. Mm-hmm. One of the things I really like about your show is that it is, you know, jokes hung on this premise of here's the next trick. Yeah. And is that something that you, you know, in an effort to cram more jokes per minute, are you consciously writing Constantly, I mean, where are you coming from with that? Are you, oh, this will work. I'll write another 40 minutes of stand-up and then take 10 minutes out and put it in my juggling show. Or do those happen naturally in the show? They happen naturally. I'm very passive about the creation. I do love to read jokes. I love to read joke books. I love to read, I mean, I enjoy your feed on uh, Twitter, the funny once a day. Mm. There's another um, one-liner guy on Twitter, and uh, he's fantastic. I like to keep my mind in the game of the conflict, the thing that happens when you lay something out and then smash it to pieces and logic has to fly out the window and it comes out in the form of a laugh. You know, whatever that is, that smashing of how we're going along on this train and then, no, we're not, we're on this other train. You know, that whatever right. that is, I love doing that. And I love observing how other people do it. Like, mm-hmm. I just enjoy, you know, it's been such a treat having Holtzman here today, so this tour because he's one of the geniuses. I mean, he's one of the best in terms of, you know, Christ, this trick took me 10 years to learn. It's not that difficult, I just hate to practice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's great. To just look at that statement and then how do I undermine that premise, the way that he does that is elegant and beautiful. And I do try to look for moments in the show. And I am trying to always craft a funny moment. And of course, I script beforehand. And yeah, of course, well, I, I put yeah. in one again. A lot of times, I just play with something and I like it and I try to do a storyline I don't want to do a joke from out of nowhere I want to have a storyline that continues through the show and that really if something fits into that or will fit into it or could be fit into it then I'll use it there's so much of it too that I forget which is a shame I've often thought why don't you put them inside your pop case? You know, put a little sign with just a reminder (laughs) I don't do it you don't have to take four minutes yeah. Well, I guess sort of the reason for that question is things like your line, uh, with the exception of the children, we're all adults here. <laughs> I love that line. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it kills that, me. It never that, kills me. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> yeah, right? That is a good line, yeah. damn it. I'm going to tell it every time until you laugh. <laughs> I do too. But that strikes me as a joke that was written. Oh, no. And so mm-hmm. what you're telling me here is that you have you know, through magic and, you know, show archaeology, just done it enough that you came across a moment where that came into your brain and you blurted it out and kept it. Yeah. And know, is that how it all happens? That one, absolutely. You know, on that one, there's a little bit of a story. I had a three-day direction also with Philippe Petit, the wire walker. Yeah. And he tried to straighten me out to no avail. But we had a good time anyway. He didn't give me back my check. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> of the two, I would have preferred if he had. But anyway. Yeah. He said, take the balloon bit out of your show. 
he eliminated a lot of routines from my show. The balloon bit was one he tried to eliminate. And I'm doing a very complicated balloon. He said it's too juvenile. Just to take it right out. But I held on to it. And that line came from an earlier form of, look, this isn't going to be a dog, okay? It's going to be a serious balloon. I wanted to say to the audience, don't worry, I'm not wasting your time with some dumb, stupid balloon. I'm, I'm giving you this very great gift. It started with, uh, this ain't going to be no puppy dog, you know what I'm saying? And this is after inflating a balloon fairly long, so people already have implanted in them the sort of phallic connotation yeah, yeah. along. It started with, we're all adults here, well, mostly, and then it came to, except for the kids, we're all adults here. It was very organically from this feeling of inadequacy regarding the balloon. Right. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's how a lot of it does get done. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, as we've discussed in the past, I do actively write things, mm -hmm. lots of them, but so many of the best ones are things that just happen right there in the moment. And he's scrambling for the notebook at the end of the show. <laughs> Jeebus, don't let me forget that one. It's so good. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's good. To, I mean, it's great to hear actually that that happens to other people as well. Oh yeah. Because some of those jokes in your show just seem so perfect. Like, and you know, pages and pages and pages of a notebook must have been filled to come, <laughs> I wish. To come up with that. <laughs> no. Very, very catch-as-catch-can on the process. And I do, I do write. You know, I do some writing for sure. And I do daily, daily journal writing. And, and I'm not afraid to write a comedy line when it comes to me. You know, right. I got the, uh, the wherewithal to know to catch it. And that's from making a lot of mistakes. And too many times going, <laughs> there's no way I can forget that. Oh. Yeah, there's a way. That is the worst thing. If there was a way to shoot that thought, yeah. just to do something, just put it in a box and never think it again. I promise. Yeah, yeah right. Oh, as, I'll remember. As soon as you hear that yeah. thought, like write it down. I don't need to get out of bed and write that down. Oh, no. no. Yeah. How can I forget that? <laughs> it's the greatest thing. Too good to be forgotten doesn't exist. No. <laughs> Forgetting always happens. Can you tell me about the worst thing that's ever happened on the street do you have any like terrifyingly bad experiences yeah yeah there's one that i like to tell just because it was that bad it was so horrible i was dumb if you can imagine me dumb yeah well i, I can't but stretch uh, we'll stretch yeah <laughs> yep, there was a time when i was quite dumb and nothing happened since then i used to do a kid on my shoulders on the rolling globe mm -hmm. now that's just dumb because the rolling globe is the one circus prop where you can bail sideways. You can really, really fall off that fucker. And thankfully, that never happened. I even did a pratfall onto the rolling globe. Quite, I was agile, you know. It was, I was stupidly confident. But anyway, so I got the kid on the shoulders. We do the whole bit with the rolling globe. Renaissance Fair, partner show. Hundreds of people. They're five deep in a huge oval. And I'm telling him the line I still use today. You know, we're going to do this uh, bit. And then you're going to do a backflip off while he's on my shoulders. And... The kid, God bless him, he really buys it. And so when it comes time, the juggling is finished, he throws himself off with all of his might going for this backflip. And I mean, he just, you know, the thing is, it's a funny bet. You hold their legs around you, you get seven minutes of laughs out of it, and you control the entire fall. But this kid was athletic, and he just flies off my back, lands on the crown of his head. Mm. And people in the audience later told me, he hit his head, and then his whole freaking head went sideways. I mean, the whole head went like, Goom! and it just, they said it looked like the worst neck break you ever saw in your life. Falls down on his back, and a woman from the audience rushes up and straddles his head with her knees. She gets right down there, and she says, this boy isn't going anywhere until he goes in an ambulance. And apparently, you can have a serious neck injury and not even know it. So she may have made the right choice. <laughs> me and Ned, my partner, are looking around going, I guess we're not going to hat this one. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. Thanks, everybody. Let's wait another 15 minutes. Oh, let's start again. And it just was, I've never bailed on a show because I always, even if it's horrible, the worse it is, the more I want them to see the finale. Yeah. So I've never, never have bailed. And that one was bailed for me. There was nothing to do. And it was like this great show that was truncated horribly. And the poor kid, obviously, I'm dying inside. Ambulance comes, takes off, and I keep doing shows. What else am I going to do? About 4 o'clock that day, the family showed up again, and the kid was fine. They had gone to the hospital and gone through everything. And right. I gave him a free birthday party. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that was... 
So I didn't realize you'd done Ren Fairs as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, did the New York for 12 years or something. And what time period is that? Is that like the original Mud Show and Puke and Snot, that whole crew? I think just before. it was I, Because I know like six or seven years into it, we had the Mud People start and they were a phenom. Yeah. They were massive. Everybody loved the Mud People. We were lucky. We were just right place, right time. Right. It was Don and Sherry and they were the New York Fair and they were not affiliated with anyone else. And... Uh, it was beautiful mm. money. People were happy. They wanted to have fun. They gave you the benefit of the doubt. And they just really, really filled us up. There were a lot of things. You know, there were many. I was on Grateful Dead tour for a long time. Me and my ex-wife, we went and juggled in the parking lots and cleaned up. That was, that was the untapped resource, too. Right. That was great. Another, you know, I think when I think of the Ren Fair, I think of the Deadheads. And I, I was going to the shows, too. They were appreciative, happy, having a fun time, and actually fairly resourceful. Everyone had a few bucks, you know. That was a great community to perform for. Hmm. That's pretty counterintuitive to me. Like, if you told me, hey, Mike, you have to perform for a parking lot full of deadheads before a Grateful Dead show, mm-hmm. I'd be like, and yeah, after. yeah, no thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. I'll let you have that one all to yourself. <laughs> you can have that pitch. Yeah. but uh, Great. Wow. Great pitch. Yeah. Everyone else thought that, too. You know, it was the only game in town in that that I ever saw. In fact, I remember one time, I was so young and stupid, I had a green felt hat, and I was doing shows at a, at a fair, at a, a dead show, and uh, someone else started doing a devil stick, and I'm like, a newbie, I'm just such an idiot, I got a full hat, and I walk over to him to ask him not to do the devil stick, and he begrudgingly says, fair enough, I said, you know, I'm trying to do, for a living, you know, yeah. and so he, he walks off, he's perfectly happy, and I walk back, and my hat is gone, oh, <laughs> no. it was full, and I can only think, my hope is that some drugged out, spaced out hippie is walking along going, where do I get the gas money, dear lord, <gasps> thank you God, <laughs> that's my dream for that hat, yeah. Well, I hope that's the reality as well. <laughs> we'll never know until we yeah. get to pay-per-view. <laughs> and you mentioned partner shows here and partner shows there and X-Wife this and my partner that. Mm-hmm. You're solo now for how long? As an act or as a guy? Uh, as an act. As an act, I've been solo for really the whole time, the 27 years. When Ned and I did a partner show, we did it in a seven-year span he saw me at the Ben & Jerry's Traveling Show in Hastings on Hudson. We had worked together at the fair separately, but then we met up. He said, let's do a two-man show. I was writing at the time for Juggle Magazine. He had read an article, and he was interested in uh, getting together. And so we used to do one show a day at the end of the day. And it made so much more than we did single that we eventually were doing three shows a day together. Right. You know, a lunch, a morning, and an evening. And the, he'll always be my partner. You know, anytime I have a, a need for a two-man juggling show, we still can do the, the big trick. It was He was on a Rolling Globe. I was on an eight-footer. We would pass fire to finish it. And uh, it was always very smooth with Ned. We worked very well together. Good friends. But we were both primarily solo acts even then. Right. I never really... Uh, so it's just you just get together as a marriage of convenience. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And oh. have a few laughs. I, I really think that that's very different from most team acts. Yeah, it's the only act they do. Yeah, it's like a, it's very much a marriage, and then to do a solo show is the other thing you do. When oh my god, you know, partner is out of town. Joey's out of town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you can tell. Yeah, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. and it depends on what you put your effort into. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that. I remember Al Miller and I talking about what it is that gets someone paid. Hmm. Uh, and Good uh, topic. And he said that he's firmly of the belief, and I think I totally agree with him, that it's not necessarily the... No, it's definitely not the trick. And it's not necessarily anything about the performance, per se, so much as it's the person, you know? Mm -hmm. Do they like you? That's who gets paid. Absolutely. Yeah. I believe that. And I don't think it's a line. It's a conversation threaded through the show. The acts who make the most do bring it up once or twice. You know, if you're listening to this for hints and tips, if you want to know how yeah. to get money on the street, that's certainly... 
it's a conversation and you see it early in the show yeah and you once or twice with a laugh in my case you reference it like the people we have been seeing all day that you don't have any problem with receiving money you feel good about it and they have to if they don't feel good about it yeah it's, but it's interesting that there's that whole thing where it's you know the performance and the trick that you choose to do is just a way to make yourself even more likable and more likely to get paid because they like you. Yeah, and some yeah. beautiful moments in the show are just pure mistakes. Sure. <laughs> and I love that, you know, when people yeah. can totally, everything is going wrong. I saw a few people with grace under pressure today. There were a couple of things I saw that were just, things were going wrong and the performer made it a good time. Mm. And I love that. It is who you are and it's how you are reflecting who they are back to them. You know, how you're making it a communal experience. That's huge part. I mean, you can call it what you want. You can call it connecting. You can call it drawing them out, whatever it is. But And you know, we're, we're more challenged than we ever were with the smartphones and the texting and the, the times growing ahead of us. Europe, no, it was uh, Dan's line today. Beautiful line. He looked at a woman and said, yes, text your friends that the show is about to begin. Tell them, tell them right away. Which was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Our enemy, the smartphone. Yeah. Our hashtag today is can't live in the moment. <laughs> yeah. That's terrifying, isn't it? But, you know, whatever. Part of the deal. And look at checks, you know, with uh, friend me on Facebook and be the first one and get a freebie. Yeah. I mean, make it your friend. Yeah, it works. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, misbehave. I just saw her do a great cabaret show in London where instead of saying this half of the audience and that half of the audience and actually physically dividing them by where they were sitting, she said, okay, we're going to divide the audience into iPhone and other. <laughs> That's great. Which is great. It's about an even split yeah. by market share. So it was perfect. Yeah, and there's so much pride in phone choice. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's sickening. <laughs> well, yes. Galaxy guy. <laughs> well, you disgusting people. You, yeah. I'm an iPhone girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah, it was a good, yeah. Yeah, immediately creating the headbutting. It's pretty smart, actually. Consumer choice. Amy, no fool. No, yeah, let it never be said that Amy is a fool. And do you uh, do you practice at all? Are you, uh, are you working up new shows? No. Do I have anything I'm working on? No. It is pretty solid and pretty tight. If I'm doing anything, it's brushing up some of the verbiage. I have a, a really great bit I was working on four or five years ago. With a slapophone, a uh, PVC xylophone. Yeah. I was doing Mexican hat dance. It was two octaves. And at the same time, I'm doing... Da -dun -da -dun -da -dun. I had a, a hundred balloons all around me on a stand. And I had needles in the paddles. So I would do percussion with the balloons. So it got bigger and bigger, and then I had a uh, commercial balloon popper. So the final note was, you know, ten balloons at once, and confetti fell down. Right. It was nice, but it was obviously an enormous amount of labor for a three-minute bit. Yeah. And it was beautifully impractical. I liked it, and then I didn't like it for the same reason. If I'm going to learn anything new, it's going to be something like that, something completely stupid, no one else is doing, nutty, uh, but, but it's going to involve a lot less props. Than the Mexican hat, yeah. Yeah. And do you try and conform to the, like, wait, it has to all fit inside a Samsonite? Yeah. Right. I do. I do. Actually, here I'm with two suitcases because a leaf blower is provided by the festival. But normally I have everything in a, I have a little compact leaf blower that I use and one suitcase, but also one unicycle. So. Right. Suitcase plus unicycle. Uni. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, if possible, I like that. I have very few shows that call for more than that. Yeah. What's the next step? Do you have anything coming down the pipe? Hmm. Do I have any goals? Do I have any goals with it? Uh, wow, great question. No, I'm pretty content. You know, I have uh, reached a place where I'm happy performing. I don't see myself as a guy going around doing regional theaters. You know, I think that the, the show is what it is. And it's, you know, it's not even at the level of some of my betters. You know, I have some guys on the same circuit who are like, way way tighter way way stronger and some that are way way funnier and that's really okay with me i have a place where i'm comfortable doing this particular show it's not my whole life I, if i'm going somewhere wild and insane and different it's probably going to be in sculpture or in writing or some some different mode of expression 
but you know there there are lists uh, to tick off. I want to go to Moisture Fest. You know, I want to go uh, the thing that'll never happen to uh, Christchurch. Mm -hmm. um, I want to do Edinburgh. There's a few. You know, there's a few still to tick off. But I don't expect that they're going to be the end all or the be all. You're going to be another festival with other beautiful people, and that's going to be that. I like it as a means to provide myself with a substantial living without having to work too hard at it. It allows me the luxury of time. Yes. I'm, I'm enjoying the time. The greatest luxury of all. Time. Yeah, I think so. It's been a great gift. Why will you never get to Christchurch? Oh, I scooted up with Jody. I'm in Denver, and uh, it's raining on the pitch, and this stranger comes up to me, and she's like, when are you on? And I'm like, I don't know when I'm on, lady. <laughs> and that was Jody. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm never going. And she's got a thing about politeness. And I was rude. Sure. So that yeah. ain't happening. <laughs> Unless she steps oh, down. Oh, no. <laughs> In every audience, there is a <laughs> potential a customer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she was the one. One of the great gaffes. Oh, that's oh, I've written the apologetic emails, everything. Not a chance. Right. <laughs> we'll edit that out, right, Dave? Okay, good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe the bit about the purple strap on, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, get that thing out of my mouth. <laughs> what do you say? Shall we leave it there? That sounds like a plan. That seems like we covered most of what needs to be covered. <laughs> now, before getting into the closing credits, I just wanted to make something perfectly clear. I go out of my way to make sure that the people involved in these interviews get the final say about what actually gets released. So when Mike jokingly said at the end of the interview, We'll edit that out, right, Dave? Okay, good. <laughs> I did actually go back to both Mike and Carl to make sure it was okay to include that content. Mike's response was this, I'll defer to Carl, though I do think it's both funny and a good cautionary tale. Carl responded by saying, Definitely leave that shit in. Can't reshell an egg. So there you go. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these stories. With this episode, we're celebrating our third birthday, as it was on this very day three years ago that this crazy little idea was launched with Episode 1 back on November 1st, 2011. Huge thanks to those who've been with us from the start and to those of you who've joined us along the way. It's certainly been an interesting adventure. Now, we throw hours into the production of each episode, then put them out into the world because we feel the stories and examples that are shared provide the sort of inspiration capable of elevating the craft of street theater to a higher level. If you enjoy the content, we ask that you help us cover the hard costs of maintaining and delivering it to you by throwing a little love into our online hat. Just head over to the Busker Hall of Fame website and click on the Donate button. And today I'm throwing a challenge out to the hundreds of listeners who regularly download these episodes. Between now and the end of 2014, we're hoping to raise $1,000 to wipe out our debt and have a little bit of operating capital as we enter into the new year. We'll be tracking this campaign on the donate page on the Busker Hall of Fame website, where we'll also be listening and thanking all of our contributors. This is our crowdsourcing initiative, and your chance to tell us with your cold hard cash if you want this project to continue. Hosting this site, buying digital recorders, and editing software, all these things cost money, and to date I've been floating these costs because I believe in this project. Three years in, I'm hoping you believe in it too and are willing to help us reach our goal. As I'm sure you've heard, or perhaps even said at the end of your own performance, the only people who pay us to do this are the people who enjoy our show. So if you're hearing this, yeah, that means you. Perhaps you've been sitting on the fence about contributing to the Busker Hall of Fame. If so, I'm hoping that by setting a natural goal, we'll help tip the balance. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us reach our targets so that we can keep things rolling into 2015. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go into the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve, or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. You know, I say that spiel at the end of every podcast, but I wanted to point out that we've actually amassed an amazing collection of written articles on the Busker Hall of Fame website and are always looking for more interesting contributions. So if you do have a story you want to share... I really do mean it. Drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash buskerhalloffame, which has been exploding recently with an amazing number of really cool photos from around the world. Follow us on Twitter, Yappy, and now SoundCloud at Busker Stories, or sign up for our newsletter on the Busker Hall of Fame website. 
Now, as someone committed to a geometric pattern that often covers most of my body when I put on my costume, this final thought really struck a chord with me. I really downplay the costume now. I had a great thing happen like three years ago. I said, I'm just going to wear a black collar shirt and black pants. And before that, it was horribly colorful. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, lemon tie, lime green jacket, blazer, and a yellow shirt was fine by me. And I had that for many, many years. And then I thought, why have something on your body that you have to overcome? (laughs) 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 On behalf of myself, co-producer Lindsay Lindbergh, Mike Wood, who captured this interview, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. You have to ask yourself, is this worth a buck or what?